Lord. There is a need for us from time to time to be reminded that we need to lean upon Him. Because even though we go through the motions of the Christian life and seek to grow spiritually, oftentimes we become self-sufficient and we become dependent upon our own strength. And the truth is, Jesus told His disciples, who were some of the closest ones to Him, He said, without Me, you can do nothing. And if He said that to His disciples, I think how much more is it true even to you and I? And uh, the fact that we need to rely upon Him and lean upon Him. And um, I've been so convicted in the last probably month or so, I was studying a number of things about four or five weeks ago on this idea of God's glory and how often we take His glory. And uh, the idea that we need to make sure that when we talk about things, whether it be our church or or um, the things that God's doing in our lives, that it is not something that uh, points men to our goodness or or our strength or what we have done, but it's something that we use to glorify Him and to lift Him up. Uh, even when it comes to talking about our church, I think it's very important that people see Him through our church. I'm thankful we have a very kind church here, a church that's open and very hospitable and loves people. But we've got to be so careful that we don't go around bragging about those things. We want to point people to Christ, not our people. And we want to point people to Christ, not, not the preaching or the, the singing that goes on here. We want people to see Him and what He's doing here in this place and what He's doing in the hearts of people. And we've got to be so careful that we don't rob God of His glory. And I think we live in a day where even without knowing it oftentimes and ignorantly, we do so. And we've got to be careful we get so used to doing things the way we do them, and we don't take time to stop and analyze and think, is this correct? Is this right scripturally? And how we need to be careful that we have, uh, as Paul wrote uh, to the church in Philippi, he said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, the Bible says he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The mind of Christ that Paul speaks of there in Philippians chapter 2 is not just a general mind of Christ, but specifically regarding his humility, his willingness. Even though he was, of all people, the one most likely and one most worthy to elevate himself and to take glory and to have glory, he willingly gave himself to a spirit of humility. And he didn't do that for his sake. God is self-sufficient. His glory belongs to him. The humility that he allowed himself to have was for our benefit, for us to see as an example how we are to be. And I hope that we learn about this. We, we joke often about humility. It's, a, it's one of those things, it's one of the most difficult issues to deal with in our lives because about the time that we get a handle on our pride, we get proud of it. We get proud of the fact that we've finally achieved humility. We, I had a, a friend of mine that I grew up with. His name's Bill Ruddy, now pastors out in Kansas. He was one of my assistant pastors in Florida for a number of years and dear friend of mine. Uh, and uh, we used to joke around all the time about these books that we were writing and the titles for them and one of them we came up with was the world's ten most humble men and how I trained the other nine, you know. And uh, then we were coming up with a sequel, The Road to Humility and How I Walked It, you know. 
And if we're not careful in the process of seeking to have a mind of Christ, we'll become prideful of it. And without even realizing it sometimes. And uh, very important that we understand that there are times we need to stop and think and take some inventory about ourselves. And ask as the psalmist did, Lord, search my heart, try my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. If there's something that needs to be dealt with. I promise you this, if you pray that prayer sincerely and not defensively, (laughs) because oftentimes we pray it defensively, don't we? Lord, if you see any wicked way, okay, well, that thing right there, no, I can explain that. (laughs) And we try to justify it. But if you come to him sincerely, he'll show it to us. And be willing to get it corrected and taken care of. Let's take our Bibles this morning, if you will. Turn to Haggai chapter 1, and Lord willing, we will be fairly brief. But uh, I do want to bring a message. We've been studying in Sunday school through the Old Testament, doing Old Testament survey. We <coughs> have spent a number of weeks in First and Second Chronicles, and then today began in the book of Ezra. I love these books. We get into these areas of the history of Israel and I understand that a lot of the things that were promised by God to Israel were specifically for Israel. But one thing that reading the Old Testament helps us to see is that oftentimes we understand that the way God deals with Israel is is very much the way oftentimes that He deals with us as Christians. And we can learn His heart and we can learn the character of God. We can learn the attributes of God and the things that He desires and the things that displease Him. And uh, we can strive to have those things in our lives. This morning we were talking about the time that Israel and Judah both, they they were a divided kingdom at this point with ten tribes to the north as Israel and two tribes to the south as Judah. And during this time of uh, about 450, almost 500 years or so, the the wickedness that went on uh, and how that God brought judgment upon them. And He brought the Babylonian captivity to the northern kingdom and the Assyrian captivity to the southern kingdom. And eventually they all came together under the Babylonian captivity with Nebuchadnezzar as he conquered the then known world and succumbed, uh, caused the Assyrians to succumb to his might and power. And he uh, begins to keep the nation of Israel in captivity. And uh, as we look at some of the things about that, we see the grace of God so often shown, his long suffering, his willingness to even in spite of their wickedness and idolatry, to bring them back to Him again, to restore them once again. And one of the things that I think is so uh, important for us to understand is the the desire uh, of Judah to go back at the end of, um, under the uh, Babylonian captivity, at the end of that uh, captivity, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild uh, the temple, to rebuild the walls. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school today under Zerubbabel, who comes back to Jerusalem, leads a remnant of folks back, about 48,000 folks, 49,000 folks, uh, back to Jerusalem to rebuild what was destroyed. The temple was destroyed and had uh, been demolished. It was just a rubble heap. The walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed and was just a rubble heap. And during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We find the rebuilding of the temple. And under Zerubbabel... They began the start of the temple, and for two years they worked on it and got the, basically uh, pretty much just the foundation of the temple done in that two-year period. And because of opposition, they stopped work on the temple. For 14 years, it still was left undone. 
And during those 14 years, the folks, because of the opposition, people that were against them rebuilding the temple, the folks went ahead and began to work on their own houses and began to uh, establish themselves and get grounded. And it got to a place where they became very, very comfortable with their day-to-day operations. And the opposition had uh, subsided. There wasn't nearly as much opposition as there had been. In fact, it had been quiet for a number of years. Because they weren't doing anything. They weren't, they weren't working on the temple. They weren't building the walls. They were just farming the land and making life uh, bearable. And they were uh, enjoying life. And, and I would say it this way. They became comfortable. They became comfortable. And God brings along Haggai. And I want us to look at some things here in verse number 1 of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest, saying, "Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, the time has not come that the Lord's house should be built." So he said, "You know, you folks are out here saying that it's not time yet to do this." And that's what he's speaking of there in verse number two. Verse number three. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have so much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because mine house that is waste, and ye run every man into his own house. Father, we come to you this morning. I pray that you'll help us to learn some truth from the example of your dealings with the folks from Israel. And during this time period, some of the battles and some of the struggles they went through. And some of the lessons that they learned, I pray that you would help to guide and direct our lives as we learn some valuable things that will help us in the day that we live. And Father, may your Holy Spirit do His work in our hearts, guide and direct our thoughts, and the message you would have for the hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can imagine after 14 years of the, the, the foundation of the temple being ready and the opposition has now subsided, these folks are busy. The Bible says here in Haggai chapter 1, <coughs> he said, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? C-E-I-L-E-D, sealed houses, meaning they have ceilings in them. And the phrase here that's used is a unique thing because a lot of times when houses were built in that time period, they would have beams and then they would put a roof over top of that, that area. And a lot of times they would use the rooftops in the cool of the evening to sit and to socialize. And the inside of the house was not as, as nice as the outside of the house. And folks that were uh, more affluent would have a finished house on the inside, or what we would call a sealed house. They would put a ceiling in and finish the walls. It would look very nice. And God said this. He was telling the folks in Israel, He said, You guys say that it's not time to build my house. And he said, you're sitting here in sealed houses. You're sitting here in finished homes, homes that have been completed, so homes that are uh, completely uh, done up the way they should be, and you're living your life in ease and in comfort. 
and you're not considering the fact that my house lies waste. I want you to put yourself for a minute in the shoes of the children of Israel. Because after, after 400 plus years of captivity, they've now been allowed to go back to their home. They've spent some time working and trying to make life better there in the city of Jerusalem. And they've gotten to a place of ease and they've gotten to a place of comfort. And it seems to me that at this point in their, in their history, in this point of their time, that they have grown accustomed to the day in and day out routine of living life with no ambition, with no desire, with no zeal towards progressing more to the things of the Lord. They were content, if you will, with the status quo. And I think one of the dangers of our Christian life, if we're not careful, is that we will get to a particular place and we'll be content there. And we won't have that growth, that desire to grow. We won't have that love for uh, uh, becoming more like Him. I love what Paul said as he said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses a lot of uh, 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 athletic terms in his writings, oftentimes speaking of running races and pressing toward the mark is a, a phrase that was used that illustrated a, a runner at the end of his race straining with every fiber he has to break through the, the finish line before his uh, competitors and putting that last ounce of strength toward it. And that's the, the idea of the phrase, pressing toward the mark. Uh, then he, and he talks often as he gets to the end of his ministry, he says, I have finished my course, I have ran my race. He said, I've kept the faith. And until the day that God called the Apostle Paul home, he had a desire, he had a zeal, he had a drive, if you will, to be more of what he should be. To, to, to draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be more like Him. And he didn't grow accustomed, he didn't grow uh, complacent, he didn't grow apathetic. I've said it recently a couple of times in, in recent months that when the church and when, and when folks that are, uh, that are Christians that have named the name of Christ, when there is no persecution, when there is great religious liberty, we are prone to grow very, uh, uh, very mediocre, uh, to be lulled into complacency. Uh, there's no, there's no battle to fight. There's no, uh, there's no resistance against us. There's no oppression to rise up against. And if we're not careful, during the time of religious freedom, we become uh, very cold, very lukewarm, uh, very content with where we're at spiritually. I read oftentimes of both in Scripture and in historical records of folks in the early church and and uh, the early Christians and how zealous they were for God. I'm talking children, young children, that would literally go to torturous deaths rather than deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live in a day where we can't come to church because we have a headache. <laughs> and I think we have grown very calloused and very lukewarm. I could not fathom living in the day that some of these folks live in having to endure the things they had to endure and yet remain faithful through them. And I often wonder if the day should present itself to us in this time period, how we would respond. God tells the children of Israel two different times here. He tells them, He says, consider your ways. And I believe the reason for that is they had grown so lax, they had grown so apathetic, so content with life, 
that God was trying to wake them up. He's trying to say, listen, it's, it's not time for you to sit here. It's not time for you to eat and drink and take your ease. But it's time to rise up and do a work for God. As we read through and study in the Old Testament, we were in Ezra today, and how even the, the nation of Judah, who had a, a few, and had eight godly kings, or kings that at least were somewhat uh, seeking to do right in the eyes of the Lord. And God seemed to prolong His judgment on Judah more so than Israel, the northern kingdom. But even in spite of that, <coughs> we find that the nation of Judah was finally was finally brought to a point of judgment. And I believe that there were some things that we can learn in their response to the position that they found themselves in. And I want us to look at a couple things today. I want to encourage us through this message that we get to a place in our lives where we stop for a moment and we begin to look inwardly at our lives and we consider our ways. Where is the zeal? Where is the drive? Where is the pressing toward the mark? We, we live in a day where, where personal holiness is frowned upon. And the preaching on it is frowned upon even more. We don't want to be told that there ought to be a difference that marks our life. We don't want to be told that we ought to be looking different and acting different and, and setting an example for the world. Not in an arrogant way, but the same way Christ was. With an absolute spirit of humility. There is no doubt in any of our minds as we read through the life of Christ and we see how different He was, how perfect He was, how holy He was, how much of an example of a believer that He was, and yet with every ounce of humility that could ever be. And can I tell you this? He is our example. We are to be holy as He is holy. We're to be an example. We're to be salt and we're to be light to this world. We're not to come like, become like them. We're not to act like them and look like them and smell like them and talk like them. We're to be different from them. Not in an arrogant way, but for the grace of God. We're sinners that are saved by the grace of God. And were it not for His grace, we would be in the same boat, in the same condition. We have nothing to pride ourselves about or be arrogant about. There ought to be a difference. And I would, I would throw this challenge to us today. From God's Word, I believe that we can understand this truth or this thought, and that is this. In a day of religious liberty, and I understand some of our liberties are being eroded. I do. But the truth is, none of us here have suffered for the cause of Christ. You say, well, that person made fun of me. Well, whoop-de-doo. I'm so sorry he did. Can I tell you, that's an inconvenience. That's not suffering. Can I throw this challenge to us? That we get to a place where we look at our hearts and ask ourselves this question. Am I pressing toward the mark? Am I driving? Am I, am I trying my best every day to become more like Him? Am I seeking to be more holy and more right like Him and more righteous today? Not so I can earn my salvation, but so I can be pleasing to Him and I can be a good testimony in doing His work in this world. We can do it with a spirit of humility, with a spirit of compassion, and with a spirit of love, but with an absolute drive and a pressing toward the mark. You say, what is the mark? The mark is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be like Him. I want to, I want to follow His example. You say, Brother Greg, you're never going to be there. I understand that. Paul never was. In fact, Paul considered himself 
at the end of his ministry more of a sinner than he did at the beginning of it. He said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. It wasn't because he was more of a sinner. It was because he was more aware of his sin. Consider your ways. Have we grown complacent? Have we grown comfortable in our Christian life? Well, we have a church. We love to go to it. We have friends there. We have fellowship there. We have wonderful lunches there. We have men's meetings and ladies' meetings. And, oh, our church is wonderful. But are we pressing? Are we pressing? Are we striving to be more like Christ today than we were yesterday? Are we mortified? Are we, are, we, are we having a hatred for our sin? Are we having a disappointment in ourselves for the times that we fail God? Or have we grown so accustomed to it that we just get comfortable living that way? Consider our ways. Consider our ways. I want us to look at a couple things here. First of all, turn with me to Second Chronicles. And we're going to look at a passage that I know many of you probably can quote, but I want us to look at some things here before we move on to the book of Ezra. Second Chronicles chapter number 7, and let's look at verse number 14. Second Chronicles chapter number 7 and verse number 14. God makes this promise to His people, the children of Israel, and I understand it's written to the children of Israel. But the principle of this holds true in every life. If my people, which are called by my name, shall... What's the first one that they're supposed to do? Shall what? Shall humble themselves. Can I tell you this? We can never grow the way that we should until we have a spirit of our need for Him, an understanding of our need for Him. If we get so arrogant, if we get so proud that we think that we can, that we can live the Christian life the best we can and that's good enough, then we have missed the boat. There needs to be an understanding of absolute dependence upon God in order to live the Christian life. Lord, I cannot live holy if I don't have Your help in doing so. If I don't have the guidance of Your Holy Spirit, I cannot live right. I cannot be a testimony. I cannot do the things that are told to me in this book. I cannot live the way of being a salt to this world or a light unto this world if I do not have Your aid and Your help in doing so. We get so, we get so self-centered. We get so, so prideful of our own selves that we can do this. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I've got character, Pastor. I get up at, at this time every morning and I read my Bible at this time every morning. And, and I, I make sure I read this many passages and these many verses and these many chapters. And all it is is all about me, 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 and I, 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 and all that I do to become a better Christian. What needs to happen is we need to come to our life and consider our ways and realize how wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked that we are. And say, God, I cannot do it if I do not have You doing it in my life. If Your Holy Spirit does not bear fruit in me, I will not be able to live this Christian life. I think there's an awful lot of frustrated Christians out here going around trying to live how they should outwardly without having the Holy Spirit bear fruit in them inwardly. And I believe it starts with humility. A recognition of saying, Lord, I can't. I don't have the strength. I like what somebody said about humility. He was trying to define it, and somebody asked him, he said, what is humility? And he made this statement, I'll never forget it. He said, it's not thinking more of ourselves than we ought to. He said, neither is it thinking less of ourselves than we ought to. He said, it's simply not thinking of ourselves. I can't do it. 
I can't live the Christian life the way God tells me to in Scripture. There's no way. I don't have that kind of strength. There are moments of weakness. There are are moments in my life that if I don't have Him bearing fruit in me, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be able to press toward that mark. There needs to be a sense of humility and absolute dependence upon Him to do the work and accomplish the work in us. By the way, the Bible teaches us that, doesn't it? He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would learn to rest upon Him to accomplish the work in us. To quit being self-sufficient in our Christian life. To quit being saying, quit saying I, I can take care of this. I can, I can pull myself I can be a better Christian. I'm going to make a commitment and I'm going to do this. I'm going to, we need to come to God and say, Lord, I can't. If I make this commitment to You, I'm going to fail. But I, I know that You can accomplish it in me. And my heart is such that I want You to. There's a humility of spirit and absolute dependence upon Him to do the work in us. The work of consecration, the work of sanctification, being done in our hearts and in our lives, needs to be upon Him and resting upon Him. I want you to notice He says this, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their name. I think there's a process that takes place here that is both instructed by and later on illustrated by the nation of Israel that I think is a wonderful thing that you and I can learn from. The first one is, I think the first step in our lives is that we consider our ways. I think secondly, there has to be, when we consider our ways, a recognition of our insufficiency and our absolute dependence upon His sufficiency in living the Christian life. Because if we attempted and tried on our own, we are destined to fail. There has to be a humility of spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to Ezra chapter number 9. Ezra chapter number 9. And we find that there is a humility that is instructed by God in Second Chronicles chapter 7. He also makes a statement of this, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, meaning there is a confession of what they find in their life when they humble themselves. And then when they find it, it says, And turn from their wicked ways. When they see their imperfections, then to have a repentance towards it, a changing Turn from their wicked ways. The Bible says, Then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land, and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I find that the nation of Israel found themselves in this place often. I'll be real frank with you. If we were to take time to consider our ways as often as we should, I think we would find ourselves in this place more often than we would think. I want us to look at some things here in Ezra chapter number 9. As Ezra has come and started a work in the hearts of the, the nation of Israel, those that were returned to Jerusalem. Under Zerubbabel, they came back, they built the altar, they restored the feasts, they began the worship of the temple and they, uh, in the temple again, the, the way they were supposed to, and then they began work on the temple. And when the work on the temple ceased, and they went every man to their own house that was spoken of there in Haggai, the hearts of the people seemed to dwindle and they seemed to turn from God. They began to marry foreign wives and those that would bring idolatry back into their midst again. They began to follow after the things of, uh, 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 that were contrary to God and the idol worship of the day and the wickedness of the heathen folks that were around them. And Ezra is appalled by it. 
after having seen some remorse, uh, some repentance and some returning to God and some revival stirring in the hearts of the nation of Israel, there was a 56-year gap between that first return and the time that Ezra comes back where they had turned so much from God. What started out as a good thing, they had turned from. Not because they set out to turn from it, but because they had grown comfortable. They were dwelling in their sealed houses. They were, if we were to word it in today's vernacular, they were just living their lives. And by just going through the day-to-day routine, they were drifting. By the way, it's amazing how much we drift in the day we live, isn't it? Without even realizing, without even recognizing. And Ezra sees this. And in chapter 9, Ezra begins to pray. And I want us to look at his prayer. In verse number 5, Ezra chapter number 9, the Bible says, And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up, I want you to notice this phrase, from my heaviness. Can I encourage us in this? That we need to be in a mindset of heaviness when we grow lukewarm. When we are not as zealous as we once were for the things of the Lord, it ought to bring heaviness to our heart. I find so many times, at least in my life, that there is a seemingly drifting or maybe I'm not as on fire for God as I used to be or not as zealous as I used to be. And you start going through that time where you just feel like it's kind of plateaued in the Christian life. And I think we all go through that from one time to the next. And then there's some times in our life that those things happen. When it happens, how do we look at that? Are we okay with that? Are we content with that? Are we dwelling in our sealed houses and allowing this, this house, this temple that the Holy Spirit lives in to lie waste? Are we, are we content in our life? Or is there a heaviness? And when Ezra saw the condition of the nation of Israel, that they had grown apathetic, that they had grown content, that they were beginning to, to let things creep in and the drifting of their spiritual condition, the, the zealousness, the excitement, the zeal of, of the revival that had begun the first two years under Zerubbabel is gone now. And Ezra has heaviness about it. Can I ask us this? When was the last time we shed a tear? When was the last time our hearts were heavy because we had lost some of the zealousness and the joy of growing, pressing toward the mark? We had grown callous. We had grown content in the Christian life. When was the last time we had heaviness over that? The Bible says in verse number 5, I rose up from my heaviness. And I want you to notice this heaviness is not anything like what we consider to be a a disappointing thing or a sad thing in the day. I want you to notice what, what it resulted in. He rose from his heaviness. And notice what it says in verse number 5. And having rent my garment and my mantle, took his clothes and he ripped them. And it says this, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. When was the last time we were so broken? That whether literally and physically or in our minds in the, in the mental state that we were in, we laid ourselves prostrate before God and said, Lord, my heart is heavy. 
I've lost some of the zeal. I've grown comfortable in the Christian life, and it, it, it disturbs me. There's a heaviness there. There's a disappointment. I've lost it. No wonder the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 that there was a church in Laodicea that had grown lukewarm. They thought that they were rich and increased with goods. They thought they were doing everything right. They, they looked good. And they went to church and they carried a Bible and they, they prayed. And, they, and all the things that they would do today, they would look and act a lot like what a, a lot of our churches look like. And yet God said they didn't even know that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Ezra. It's heaviness of heart was that the people had grown complacent. They had begun to drift. They weren't pressing for the things of the Lord. They weren't, they weren't moving forward. They weren't growing. He rinsed his clothes and falls on his face and lays his hands out. And I want you to notice as we read verse number 6, and said, Oh, my God. Anytime we see the word oh in Scripture... Can I tell you this? It is an expression of emotion that can best be described as a groaning. And he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to Thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up under the heavens. When was the last time we looked at the apathetic, dry, lukewarmness of our life and had that kind of a spirit towards it. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to the spoil and to the confusion of face as it is this day. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in His holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Oh, that ought to be the prayer of our hearts. Lord, I'm almost, I'm almost gone. The psalmist said it this way, My feet had well nigh slipped. There's a nail. There's a remnant. There, there's, a, there's an inkling there of, of stirring of the embers. God, I need a little reviving. I need a little stirring in the heart. He says this in verse 9, For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Jerusalem and in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. But we live in that day, don't we? How often I've heard, I know what the Bible says, Pastor, but... And we go on to justify why we don't obey His commandments. We have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets, saying, The land unto which you go to possess it 
is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled in from one end to the other with their uncleanness. Now therefore, give not your daughters unto, the, unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, neither seek their peace or their wealth uh, forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. You say, well, Pastor, we don't live in, in the time of Israel. We don't have those foreign things uh, uh, around us with those foreign people, the, the daughters and the sons. I mean, that's written for the nation of Israel, isn't it? Doesn't our Bible tell us as New Testament Christians, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing? Does it not say, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world? If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Does it not say that? Does it not tell us that we're to be holy because He is holy, that we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world? Does it not tell us that we're to be in the world, but not of the world? Over and over and over again we find New Testament principles that support exactly what this is saying to the nation of Israel. Are we grieved by it? That we don't have that desire, that we don't have that outlook in the Christian life? You say, Pastor, I don't think... Having standards, and I don't think having uh, I don't think having um, uh, uh, boundaries in our life and and living our I don't the rules of the Bible I don't think they're applicable for today. Oh yes, they are. Yes, they are. Verse number thirteen, he says, and after all that this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that Thou our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Isn't that just like God? He has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. If there's ever a generation of people who can claim this promise, I would say it would have to be our generation. For we have certainly not paid for the iniquities of this generation. Not what was deserved. We are debating whether we ought to continue to willingly and openly and legally kill infant babies in the womb. To take things that are an abomination to God and say these are acceptable lifestyles. And if you don't agree with it, then you're the one that's evil and wicked and ungodly. May God deliver us as Christians from the spirit of apathy to consider our ways, to be grieved at the lack of zeal, the comfort, if you will, of living our life day in and day out we're not pressing. We're not trying to be like Christ any more than we already are. We're happy where we're at. And maybe like the children of Israel for 14 years. The foundation of the temple has been there. We got saved, but we've never built on it. It's been just sitting there. God says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. 
Verse number 15, he concludes his prayer once again with a groaning. He said, O Lord God of Israel, Thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before Thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before Thee because of this. He said, God, You've still given us liberty. We're still free. We're in our own city. We have the wonderful privilege to be here again in spite of the fact that we are not living the way that we should. If you will, I want you to turn back one final time to the book of Haggai, chapter number 1. Verse number 4, he makes this statement, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? This house lie waste. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much. And this is the story of many of our lives, is it not? Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but are not filled with... but have not enough. Ye drink, but are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. There's an emptiness. There's a lack of the peace and the contentment of living a Christian life. Why? Because they were content in their own life. They weren't willing to take the things that God needed and wanted done. They weren't willing to make it a priority to build His house. Verse 7, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says, Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, though it came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because mine house that is waste, and you run every man into his own house. He said, you all labor, you work, and it's never enough. Because you're so worried about your own house, your own life. When Ezra prayed, and I, I think Ezra chapter 9 is probably, if not the best, one of the greatest prayers of confession and repentance in Scripture. For we see at the onset, Ezra comes and he humbles himself before God. He has a heaviness of spirit. He prostrates himself before God. We find he has confession. I think there needs to be a considering of our ways, a humbling of our spirit, a confession of our sin. And then you'll find that the Bible says that they turned from it. Great revival began to sweep the nation of Israel. And while time would fail us this morning to develop that portion of the message, you take time to read through what takes place in the hearts of Israel from that point forward. Great revival begins to come. Because not only did they have a humility of their sin. And not only did they confess their sin, but you'll find in chapter number 10 that they made a covenant with God. 
we're going to repent of our sin. We're going to turn from it. They had taken heathen wives, adulterous men and women from other nations. And they said, we're going to set them apart. We're going to, we're going to put them away so that we can come back to God and do right by Him. And they did. There was a repentance there. And God took pleasure in it. God was joyed. He had joy in it. He was pleased with them. I think there's a process that the nation of Israel went through under the life of Ezra and over and over again throughout the Old Testament you see it. That I think is a process that you and I ought to be going through in our daily lives. We need to consider our ways. You say, when, when do I need to do it? I would say we need to consider our ways when we least think that we need to consider our ways. Because those are the times we are most apathetic. We need to consider our ways. We need to humble ourselves. We need to confess the things that God shows us. And can I tell you, it's not enough to just confess them and ask for His forgiveness. We then need to turn from them. We need to turn from them. Over and over and over again. You find the nation of Israel saying, I'm sorry. And by the way, we live in a day where a lot of people say, Oh, I love the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness of God is great. I mean, I can go out this week and I can live how I want and I can come back to Him on Saturday night before I go to church and ask forgiveness. And guess what? He forgives me. Can I tell you this? He does. But that does not give us the right to do that. The greatest blessing, the greatest contentment in the Christian life is when there's not only just a confessing of our sin, but a turning from it. The greatest victory that God gives to the nation of Israel, the greatest mercy that He shows, is not just when they confess their sin, but when they turn from their sin. I I put forward to us in the message this afternoon, or this morning, how broken are we? Really, if it, if, it was, if it was put to us, if we had to give an answer, how broken are we about our apathy, about our contentment, our casualness, our mediocrity in the Christian life? I, I don't pursue, I don't press, I don't, I don't charge like I used to when I first got saved. I've lost the zeal. I've grown, grown lukewarm. Are we, are we burdened by that? Are we sorrowed by that? Is there heaviness of heart because of that? Or are we okay? Oh, Pastor, you know the day that we live in. We can't live that way all the time, can we? Sure we can. I believe God expects us to live a revived life. Not to have moments and periods of revival intermittently throughout our life, but to live day in and day out with our hearts stirred and pressing toward the mark. Have we considered our ways? Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. And we'll give an invitation this morning. If God spoke to your heart, would you respond to Him?
You can come to the altar if you like, or you can pray in your seats, but I would urge you to do what God has laid upon your heart. We've not preached to lost people today, but if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I would urge you to trust Him today. Put your faith in Him and what He's done for you on Calvary. But 